But what the Bible says, it's demonic. <laughs> like, hmm. And so we want to push this into a biblical category here. And so that the way from below is that way. And so kingdom power is, is actual power that Jesus wasn't kidding when he talked about how the kingdom worked, but it means the way to be actually powerful and to bear fruit that lasts is to embrace power and weakness for the sake of love. The way to function in the world and therefore antithetical to the cross is to embrace power and strength for the sake of control. Welcome to the Guilt Grace Gratitude Podcast featuring Peter Bell and Nick Fulweiler. This is a show about Christian doctrine for everyone from the historic Reformed tradition delivered by two friends in an unscripted dialogue. Join us as we discuss how the finished work of Jesus Christ changes everything. Hey y'all, this is Peter Bell, one of the co-hosts of this podcast. We started a Bible study in Santa Ana under the oversight of Oceanside United Reformed Church. We've got a growing group of people from a wide variety of backgrounds with the hope and prayer that we will plant a church in Santa Ana this summer. If you're looking for a church that preaches the gospel every week and has close-knit fellowship, contact us at SantaAnnaReformed at gmail.com or find the link in our show notes to be added to our list. Hello, everyone. Yet once again, it's another day of fresh grace and mercy. This is the Guilt, Grace, Gratitude podcast, where we bridge the gap to Reformed Christian theology for your listening pleasure. Today is a book club episode. We have Kyle Strobel back on our show. We're really excited about that. He's going to be talking about his new book, The Way of the Dragon or The Way of the Lamb. It's the revised and updated version Searching for Jesus's path of power in a church that has abandoned it. And it is published by Nelson Books. So if you guys go to our show notes, you'll see a link to Nelson Books. You can get a copy of this book for yourselves, as well as a few other links, the Society of Reformed Podcasters, which we are a member of. You can also find a local church finder where you can type in your zip code and find a a local reformed church near you, as well as some information to find out how to be a bridge builder and support our show. So we have the uh, Kyle Strobel. He is one of the authors of this book. The other author is Jamin Goggin. And uh, yeah, we'll jump right in and have Peter further introduce Kyle Strobel today. Yeah, we got Kyle Strobel, Dr. Kyle Strobel, systematic theologian, teaches spiritual theology for Talbot's Institute of Spiritual Formation and Spiritual Formation-focused programs, and his areas of interest include systematic theology, Jonathan Edwards, spiritual formation, and prayer, written both popular and academic books, and has the co-author with one of the hardest names for me to pronounce, Jamin or Jamin Gogan. So thanks for coming on, Dr. Strobel. Hey, Nick. Hey, Peter. Good to be with you guys. So, yeah. Um, so, first question is, how do we pronounce Jamin Goggin's name? Is that <laughs> it <right>? is Jamin <laughs> Goggin. You are right. There oh, we go. Yes. Yeah, yeah. For you the are win. Right. It's amazing how often it gets spelled wrong. I can get the pronunciation, but it's amazing how often it gets, because it's not that hard of a name to spell. But it's... <laughs> right. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, this this is, uh, uh, love the book. How about the first question, like, and the easiest way to go into it is it sounds like 
you may have written this book before because it says revised and updated. It's it's pretty obvious up in front in the center of the book. So maybe uh, how is this one different than the last one? Why'd you do another one? Um, we'll start there. Yeah, well, originally this business goes back by 11 years ago now. Jamin and I were talking about um, writing a book together and there were two different strands of things that came together. One strand was there was a series of people that we saw as mentors some of whom we knew well, some of whom we didn't know. Like J.I. Packer was one we didn't know, but he had been kind of a mentor of ours through his writing. And, and so we thought about all these mentors and we wanted to honor them. We wanted to sit at the feet of elders. And, and at the same time, we knew that we had been as seminary students profoundly confronted with how scripture speaks of power, mostly because as two guys that, you know, I grew up at Willow Creek, he grew up at Saddleback. Like we grew up in these mega churches where the, the kind of ministry on display led us to believe that if you do things right, it should have a certain kind of power attached to it. Hmm. And when we went to seminary, we went to seminary because we wanted to be great. And we wanted to be impressive. And we kept on running into these things Jesus said. And so we really wrote it as an exploration into what actually is biblical power. And here's what's funny. So we started this book, like I said, 11 years. This is pre-Driscoll downfall. This is pre-Bill Hybels, Ravi Zacharias, and you, know, you, you name it. I mean, the list goes on and on. And when we started, there were, you know, there were pastors losing positions for sexual sin stuff, but like nothing like we see today. And mm. particularly the shift to how many folks are losing positions because of, of what has come to be called toxic power. Mm. And, and so we, that was radar we we kind of initially should like last matter and then you had suddenly the driscoll thing and slews of other kind of of pastors and ministry leaders um lose their ministry or have to step down and um but in the midst of all that one of the people the, the we we ended up interviewing seven people people we referred to as kind of sages in the way of jesus mm. they weren't people we necessarily agreed with theologically although most were um <laughs> One who was kind of farthest out theologically, we, we included simply because of his approach to ministry, we thought perhaps best articulated the vision of power we saw in scripture. He was profoundly famous, although most evangelicals don't know him and most kind of Protestants don't know him, but there's whole centers devoted around the world in his name. Um, there's plenty of academic books written about his ministry. Um, but he's arguably one of the most important people who ever lived for people with disabilities. Hmm. Um, so his name is Jean Vanier. He, when he, when he um, did a, he did a PhD in philosophy and decided not to go into the academy, but instead invite two men with Down syndrome to live with him to try to free them from the institutionalization that they were under as people with um, mental dis um, dis um, disabilities. And he ended up starting a whole movement. Um, most people know a person he mentored more. He 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 mentored Henry Nowen. Hmm. Yeah. And he's the one that told Nowen, stop following your silly academic dreams and trying to impress everyone around you in the Ivy League. Come and pastor a group of people with mental disabilities that hmm. don't know what the Ivy League is. <laughs> hmm. 
And so a lot of people have heard of Nouwen or have read some of Nouwen. Vanier was his mentor. And sadly, after Vanier's death, um, after we spent some time with him, um, it turned out that he had um, kind of used his position of spiritual authority in a handful of cases sexually with women. Mm. And fortunately, none that were in his care. So none that were in the kind of physical and mental disabilities kind of community. And so we were confronted with this and immediately we actually, we found out on a Friday evening late, um, right after we finished a pastor's conference, um, I ironically finished the talk. My last talk at the pastor's conference was on um, how to, (laughs) how to discern wolves in sheep's clothing, ironically. And that evening we find out about Vanier Monday morning, we were on the phone with our publisher asking them to take the book out of print. Yeah. Um, and it wasn't, you know, it, it'd be one thing if we quoted him, but it wasn't, we interviewed him and we presented him as like a seven, one of seven people. We only chose seven people, mm-hmm. one of seven people that we pointed to as a sage in the way of Jesus. And so yeah. we decided we just have to, we have to redo this. And so the revised edition isn't wildly different. Basically we deleted his chapter and then rewrote a chapter where we, yep. we actually struggle through the you know what happens when kind of a a hero in the faith a mentor in the faith someone you revere proves to be a wolf in sheep's clothing and and we know that that is such a ubiquitous experience for people now Mm -hmm. um that we thought let's let's suspend a chapter kind of wrestling through this for folks and so that that's what makes the new edition Mm -hmm. different yeah Um, maybe for for those and i think generally speaking our audience um, these are like reformed, kind of reform leaning. And so a lot of them kind of probably their background and my background, and I'm sure Nick's background as well is they may come from some of these churches where they've been disaffected from um, large evangelical churches and pastors who use whether money for power or um, their platform for power or whatever. And so e- even though this, this may not be a book that I think most would like generally move towards i think it's something that if they read it they're like oh okay so maybe maybe that's what happened at my church maybe maybe this is maybe this is something that that our church was struggling with and you've already you've already kind of mentioned it too and and a lot of the stuff when i was reading your book reminded me um when i was at mars hill uh, of a lot of the stuff that that even though like when you're in this you're like oh we're like we're in it like we're we're in this great church like we're doing some big stuff in the kingdom we've We've got the reach. We've got social media. We've got all the power. When our pastor says something, like people do it. People, people follow this guy. Um, and kind of an overarching question after Nick asked, asked that is, and I'm sure you've seen a little bit of it, and this kind of dips into some of the conversations you've had with, with some of these with some of these people. <clears throat> some who our listeners may know, some who they may not know. Um, what, what do you think happened in general? You, you kind of dive into it. What do you think happened over the last 10 or so years that has precipitated this where um, instead of using this power for the kingdom, it's built up their own kingdoms? Yeah, you know, I, I think, I don't think it's something that's happened in the last decade. I actually think what the last decade has been is it's been the bearing of a fruit from, mm. from a profoundly sick tree. And I think what has happened in evangelicalism, broadly speaking, and that, that, and I'm using that very broadly. Yeah, yeah, yeah. Um, and so that cuts across a lot of spheres. We have come to believe in a vision of power that is antithetical to the cross. 
Mm-hmm. And so the easiest thing for us to do is to simply baptize evil power and try to wield it for kingdom ends. Yeah. And the sad reality is it works to a degree in a culture that is kind of generically Christianish. <laughs> and as our culture has shifted, I think that's when we've begun to see this fruit. Hmm. And, and so, you know, one of the things I've noticed, so I, I like many, I don't know if you guys did this, but I, I listened to the kind of rise and fall of Mars Hill podcast and yeah. just that story, just, you know, because I'm writing on this stuff, that, that story is an interesting one to me. One of the most disconcerting things about it, and I, and I appreciate what Cosper did. I think he totally, yeah. did a really good job. Um, and it actually, you know, it gave me a lot of empathy mm-hmm. for folks who were there. Because um, I could, you know, being a willow, I can understand some of that, but it, it's a unique thing in its own right. But what, what, what is so disconcerting to me is how many people he had on who, and these are people who, you know, wanted him gone, can name it as toxic, all these things, who still say, yeah, but he was just so gifted. And I was like, what are you talking about? <laughs> so the church's, you know, ability to be successful is to find gifted people who are strong and teach them and train them to minister in their strength. I mean, that is utterly antithetical to mm-hmm. And the way, you know, the way I've come to look at this is that the evangelical church in America is desperately trying to figure out how not to have to have faith. We, we don't want to live by faith. We'd rather live by sight. And evil power shows you. It shows you metrics. It shows you ways to get there. It gives you a very clear path of how to get it done. Mm. But it can never say what Jesus says to the apostle Paul, which is my power is made perfect in your weakness. It yeah. can make no sense of that whatsoever. And so I think the problem is we've had, we have a generation of pastors who, who genuinely believe to be faithful, they need to wield evil power for the sake of the gospel. And it's just warping the soul of the church. Yeah, it was the, the terms, and I think Nick will get into this, the, the power from above or the power from below, where we use these power tactics because we think, oh, we, we can make sure that this gospel gets out, but we'll use kind of nefarious tactics to get it out there versus, uh, and we'll get into this. I mean, I, I read the book from J.I. Packer, what was it, 10 years ago? on power being made perfect through weakness and i mean not really thinking about it now but <clears throat> going through your book it's like oh okay I, I see what he's i see what he's saying in that book now but yeah that's that's the thing I've, i think i've seen i think um some of these turns will will help people kind of orient themselves around what, what does this power look like yeah mm-hmm. one of the one of the cool things actually when we met with packer he he told us my prayer is the lord will let me live long enough to write that book mm, yep Mm. And, and yeah, we, we remember meeting with him at a little coffee shop, you know, interviewing him and talking with him. And he was talking about wanting to write that. And then we saw it come out years later. We're like, oh, that's yeah. so cool. Yeah. <laughs> yeah. Beautiful. Yeah. It's a small yeah. little book, but it's, it, it packs a punch. Mm-hmm. Totally. Yeah. And I, <clears throat> I definitely want to get a, take a, take a moment to talk about J.I. Packer and the other individuals that you guys got to interview. But before then, uh, I'd like to just have you define some key terms and what is, you mentioned kingdom power a lot. So maybe what's kingdom power and what is the way of the dragon and what is the way of the lamb? We'll just start there. Yeah. So, you know, Peter mentioned, you know, the, the away from above versus the way from below. And so that, that is the kind of construct we use. We get it from James 3, 13 and following. And for James, the way from above is the way of Jesus. 
and the way of Jesus, which is the way of the lamb. And this is a way that we would say it is power and weakness for the sake of love. And, and what, here's what's important about that. Because right now there's two moves people make. One move is to basically just adopt any power for the sake of a proper end. So it's like, I have good kingdom ends in mind. Any means necessary to get there, I'm going to do. And so we have a whole slew of people who just have no problem with wielding evil for the sake of good ends. But then we have a whole slew of people, and, and these tend to be more progressive, who just do the opposite. And they just demonize power. And this is what, it's so interesting. One of the things Edward says, right at the beginning of the religious affections, Edward says, you can never reject a movement because you see excesses or heresy in a movement. And he says, you know, I realize that's counterintuitive, but he says, whatever God's at work, you will always find Satan there sowing division Mm. and trying to mimic the work with excesses and heresies and all sorts of other things. So you throw out the baby with the bathwater, basically. And that's precisely what he thought people were doing to him. One of the things that's been interesting is in the last couple of years now, four or five years, there's suddenly the church has begun to see all this evil power stuff emerging. At the same time, you have all this critical race theory stuff that just demonizes power. Mm -hmm. And the temptation is to think that power is bad, which is just folly. The Bible's clear. You were made to be powerful, but it's only in your weakness that you can know the power of God that Paul says in 2 Corinthians 12, 10, that tabernacles upon you. It comes from without. It's not a power that you generate and wield. It's a power you receive by grace. And so that's the way of above. The way from below, James names, is earthly, unspiritual, and demonic. Now, what's interesting about that is it's it's earthly, right? So it's worldly. It's um, unspiritual. It's of the flesh. But the world of flesh and the devil all share a single power system. The unholy trinity. That's right. You have this unholy trinity of evil. Yeah. And they... They all share. So this is why I think Jesus calls Peter Satan, right? Mm. In Mark eight, it isn't because he's name calling or he's, you know, (laughs) he he's. And what's interesting, he says, you know, get behind me, Satan. And then he tells him, you're setting your mind on the things of man. The things of man and things of Satan are one type of thing Mm -hmm. because it's the way from below. And, And that way is the way of power and strength for control and usually domination. And the problem is culturally in a world that basically, you know, accepts generically Christianity and you can, you can have a platform, you can sell books, you can get on stage in front of crowds and all these things. The church became a place where you can, if if you're savvy enough, you can find this ladder to domination and to winning. And I think a lot, and this, I think it happens mostly to men and mostly young men who are pushed into ministry way beyond their maturity and character. And they end up wielding themselves. And typically, I think people have always recognized, like, oh, that's not, that's not the way it should be. That's not ideal. But what the Bible says, it's demonic. <laughs> like, hmm. and so we want to push this into a biblical category here. And so that the way from below is that way. And so kingdom power. Is, is actual power, that Jesus wasn't kidding when he talked about how the kingdom worked, but it means the way to be actually powerful and to bear fruit that lasts. 
is to embrace power and weakness for the sake of love. The way to function in the world and therefore antithetical to the cross is to br- embrace power and strength for the sake of control. Yeah, yeah and that's yeah. and that, and and that kind of maybe helps orient people towards yeah what the what the book is doing and what you're doing in the book. And then I think in general too, if we're looking through the list, there's it's hard to it's like it's and I'm sure as you guys are writing this, not like it was it was irony in any sense, but like in a sense, like J.I. Packer is a big Christian celebrity. And so he's somebody who like, quote unquote, has a lot of power within the evangelical kind of structure. Uh, and some of these people I, I didn't know and, and as, we're, as we're reading them. I was like, it's a lot of the stuff they're saying makes, <clears throat> makes a lot of sense. And so kind of with, with, with these definitions, with, with your, yours and, and Jamin's um, kind of mission in view. So what, with, with these seven with these center, seven interview or six interviews, I guess, um, what was what was the mission you guys had in view? Um, and maybe a little bit with Jerry Packer knowing like, yeah, he's, he's kind of well-known. And so he quote unquote holds power within kind of evangelical Calvinistic circles, whatever it may be. Um, but like what, why specifically these six people and what did they bring to the project that you guys thought like, yeah, they can, they can give us perspective on what this looks like. Yeah, no, that's a great question. Yeah, and, and it became clear to us there's there's a pretty harsh difference between a sage or an elder hmm. and a celebrity. Yeah. Right? And and so, but but it's sometimes that's unclear, right? Like because the way we use celebrity is so loose. Yeah. That a guy like Packer, you can talk about that way a little bit. Mm-hmm. Um, and the question then becomes, well, how did they get the kind of platform they have? Yeah, yeah. And what do they do with it? Um, but you know, we chose them because, you know, we had, we had some kind of qualifications. We wanted them to be at least 70 years mm-hmm. old. Okay. Um, we were disillusioned by pastors conferences that have 20 year olds on stage. <laughs> yeah. Um, you know, yeah. like, what are we doing? You know, it's yeah. <laughs> how, how on earth have the, has the Christian church not actually sat at the feet of our elders and, and we wanted wisdom. And so we thought we, we want people who have been tested. We want people who have lived a life of this. Yeah. And, and of course we needed to know them. So the way we know most of these people are through the writing. So it's like, there's a certain kind of person um, that we, cause I'm sure there's plenty of people like this elsewhere um, that we just don't know who they are, <laughs> but we also did want, want, you want to take these folks and kind of shine a light on them as mentors of ours that we want people to, to sit at their feet in various ways. And, and so, you know, each of them came at the task with a different thing. Um, each, their, their story was always connected to it. Um, mm. You know, that, that was what was so interesting is just talking to them about their life and how their life decisions. Like I think James Houston, who is the guy that brought Packer to Regent mm. James Houston was mentored by CS Lewis he was at Don at Oxford mm-hmm. and he left to start a school for mere Christians. And there was like five yep. students or something. Yeah. Yeah. And you're like, you left Oxford for what? <laughs> exactly. <laughs> and it just seemed absurd, but it, you know, it made sense when he talked about, well, yeah, but Jesus, <laughs> and like, mm-hmm. but Jesus said this. And so it, we wanted to hear mm. from them from there. And cause most of them, not all, but most of them had this academic background where they were writing and thinking about these things. Mm. But um, they all had a life that their life really kind of pointed to 
I do what I do because of what Jesus has said about being powerful in his kingdom. Yeah. And that's, I think that also played into, and I was pleasantly surprised, but both by the selection and kind of the diversity of experiences that you had Jared Packer, who's written a bajillion books, (laughs) articles and everything. And um, his knowing God being incredibly influential for anybody who's been born after the eighties. Um, but so him, but also you have a John, you have, you have, I think it was John Perkins was one of them. Yeah. yeah, yeah. Um, who's, who dealt with racism in the sixties and you have, um, a couple a couple ladies who are, who are incredible philosophers or theologians and, and have been thought of it. So it's, it wasn't just that you chose kind of the, the who's who of, of, kind of christian people is no we i, I love the diversity that you, you brought into the table of, of not just okay we're gonna pick this one person who's lived this kind of life but um people who've dealt with real life issues and had to say okay what what does kingdom power look like in this and one of them that struck me obviously i think jay packer is the name that everybody else knows one of them struck me was was john perkins and and how he <laughs> how he dealt with kingdom power and how, and how he dealt with racism in the sixties. And so if, if kind of, that was, that was more personal to me. And we've, we've dealt with some of these issues on our podcast before with other, mm-hmm. with other people, but, um, and maybe just to, to talk a little bit about him, what's well, like, that was like, how, how do you do that with, with people beating on you in the sixties and, and yeah, like what's, what, what was it like, like sitting at their feet and, and learning from them um, yeah. and seeing just their wisdom? Yeah, you know, it was astounding. I mean, I, I, Jamin and I often talk about it and just think back. I mean, it really is some of the most profound moments in my life have been just sitting at these feet of these folks. And, and, you know, Perkins, what a dear soul. I mean, he, you know, I, and here I come as a Jonathan Edwards scholar. Yeah. And the name of one of the sheriffs that beat him to an inch of his death was Jonathan <laughs> Edwards. Right. Like, yeah. And it, it was so astounding because he was the one non-academic that we interviewed too. Yeah. Like, you know, he, and he would talk about, it. he's like, you know, I dropped out of school. What is he? Fifth grade. Or something. Exactly. Yeah. Yeah. And, and it's amazing. And yet he, you know, that's the power of a life that has been shaped by the gospel. Mm-hmm. I mean, that, I think he is just one of the most profound examples of that, where when he was persecuted, it actually gave him eyes to see his own, own limitations of proclaiming a gospel big enough to rescue these other evil men from hate. Yeah. And that was astounding. Um, and being with him, I mean, he, you know, the funny thing with all these folks, it was almost hard for them to be sages. Yeah. They kept on just wanting to talk to us. I'm like, no, no, no. no. <laughs> yeah. I don't care what my thought is about this. Like, hey, what do you think about it? And they're like, no, 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 that's not what we're doing, you know? Yeah. But they they all kind of radiated joy they all had no problem naming evil in the church, but none of them got faint hearted about it because for them, they just had such a sense of Christ's commitment to his bride. And, and they all had this long game in mind of there is no plan B. We are called to be faithful and to bear witness to the truth. And and he, like you said, and each of them did that in their own unique way, mm-hmm. um, in their own unique calling. I mean, Perkins, yeah, I mean, his was tr- profoundly difficult. Um, <clears throat> but what was interesting is his, you know, the stories he would tell that you don't hear all that much of the white pastor who contacted him and said, I want to fund your ministry. Yeah, and yep. the, and he's saying, you know, I'm tearing down some things that are holding you up 
do you, do you realize that I'm tearing down some things that you're like resting on? Yeah. And the guy's like, yeah, I know. And, you know, mm-hmm. and, um, yeah. and it was cool. I mean, he's, and he's been really, he was really generous. I mean, here's two kids, you know, when we met him, we're early thirties, grew up in the suburbs of the mega churches. Like, <laughs> you know, uh, he didn't have to meet with us. He yeah. could have rolled his eyes at us. And he didn't yeah. like, he was really, um, we, we had a really blessed time with him and he was really encouraged by the things we were talking about and writing about. And, and the questions we were asking. And, and so it was, that was astounding. I mean, most of these folks had no reason to say yes to this. Yeah. <laughs> you know? like, yeah. Why are they saying yes to us? You know, yeah. kind of, Hey, we want to come talk to you about this stuff. And they were incredibly hospitable, incredibly open, incredibly joyful. And so that, that was interesting that that probably impacted us more than anything else. Just mm. their, their realization of, of the reality. They didn't, none of them struggled to name reality, but none of them felt kind of overwhelmed by it because their faith Mm. had just grown so profoundly. Yeah. Yeah. Yeah, And just so for the audience, uh, the names of the people that you interviewed, J.I. Packer, James Houston, Marva Dawn, John Perkins, Eugene Peterson, and Dallas Willard. Do you have any uh, other kind of, um, points that you remember from those individual interviews. I know there's sectioned very well in the book. So like, it's almost like each chapter, there's a chapter on each of these interviews that you and uh, James um, or Jamin <laughs> interview. And it's kind of a written in a narrative approach where it's like, you're very uh, descriptive about like what's going on, the, how the, how the room feels <laughs> and you know what they're doing. And yeah, it's very good. So any other comments on the other interviews? Yeah, no, I mean, it's so funny. I mean, each of them are just profoundly special to me in their own ways. I mean, um, Eugene Peterson, we had um, a long conversations about pastoring, about the state of the church, about his book on pastoral ministry is gold. Oh, totally. You know, I think he, uh, Eugene, I mean, he he wasn't a theologian, Mm -hmm. but he was kind of, in my mind, he's kind of the prophet for pastors. Yeah, he's, yeah, we read his book last semester and it's, I mean, there's, there wasn't a book that more profoundly shaped me than, than his book on, which I didn't expect from, and you can like, you can make fun of him, quote unquote, for writing the message yeah, yeah. and like all Christians like saying, oh, this is just a terrible translation, but we just don't realize like just how incredibly pastoral and humble this guy was. Totally. Yeah, no, he, yeah, that, that was an astounding time with him. Willard, similarly, you know, Willard, like we had. Um, you know, one of the things I always have loved about Dallas Willard is he was so firmly committed to what he called the kingdom of God as realism. And so when Jesus said something, he was committed to take it as seriously as possible. And so when, you know, when, when Jesus says, you know, the woman with the might put in more money, he thinks that woman's money actually is going to do more in the kingdom than the Pharisees money is going to do. Like he, he really wants to believe all the way down that when Jesus was saying things like, if you try to save your life, you'll lose it. But if you lose it for my sake, you'll find it. He, he wasn't, he wasn't kidding. He wasn't exaggerating. Yeah. He was actually saying the truth. And so we wanted to sit with him and just hear some of the stuff he had said. And, and he, again, with him, again, we, it was so interesting talking to him because he actually told me that what we need is more Edwards's and Wesley's in the pulpit is how he put it. And he said, we need people who can see the kind of ideology of the day and how it's warping souls and speak into and through it. And for him, it was interesting for a professor 
who is a you know a USC philosopher for his entire mm-hmm. career, he said the only hope we have is the church and the pulpit. Mm-hmm. Mm-hmm. He's like that's the only place where we can actually kind of speak into it, the, the broadest and deepest places across kind of culture yeah. and. Um, so that was that it was absolutely fascinating me with him. James Houston was probably the most profound interview we had in part because we spent the longest time with him mm-hmm. and his wife was struggling with um, dementia. And um, yep. and yep. so we, we share a story about that. That was just incredible being just kind of seeing how they related and talking to him about those things and about C.S. Lewis. Mm-hmm. <laughs> so like, how old are you, man? Yeah, I wouldn't like to have <laughs> talked to him face to face. Totally. Yeah. So yeah. that was, that was, that was a real trip. That was fun. And, um, and Marva Dawn, what was interesting about Marva, she was the only one we interviewed that had done an academic work on yeah. the topic. So she actually had, she wrote a book called power weakness and the tabernacling of God that gets very deep. I mean, she makes a very deep read of the text. I mean, she's actually criticizing most translations of second Corinthians 12, nine, mm-hmm. um, and she is is doing some kind of really rich theological reading there, and uh, so she that was interesting talking to her. And that interview set us. That interview totally derailed the book, actually, <laughs> <laughs> because she got, she's the one that eventually forced us to grapple with the demonic, and we weren't mm-hmm. interested in talking about that. Mm-hmm. And that that's what eventually linked us onto James three is her interview. She's like, if you're going to talk about power, you have to talk about the power and the principalities. Yeah. And, you know, as a former, you know, I have an MA in new Testament studies. So I, in, but when I was doing MA in new Testament stuff, I was very interested in um, how the powers functioned, particularly mm-hmm. when you get to the stoicheia, you know, yeah, which I was language about to get. say that's now that the first word that came to my mind. Totally. And that, that we we never imagined that would be a part of this book, but once we did that interview, suddenly it became clear. Like we really have to wrestle with this, and that's you know it that did two things for us actually. It really raised the stakes of this discussion. Yeah, because the way the church talks about the problem isn't right. We talk about the problem like it's not ideal when it's in fact demonic. So that's something we need to grapple with. But it also shifts us to talk very seriously about the church and the practices of the church. Mm. Because it's these places that are bearing witness against the powers and the principalities. And, and so that that's what eventually set us on the trajectory it did for the rest of the book. Hmm. Yeah. Mm-hmm. And so with, with some of these interviews, <clears throat> again, we can talk about the, the big people um, as long as as long as we want, because they're they're big. But what what was what was surprise, what was maybe the most not surprising? What was the most profound? What do I want to say? Um, chapter what was the prof- most profound moment as it, as it relates to this kingdom power as it relates to humility maybe where you least expected it where, where you're writing through this where you're thinking through this you're asking the question and they, they give you an answer um and you're like that's that's not what i expected that's mm-hmm. but it was it was enough to be like I, I need to write this down i need, I need to i need to dive into this further because it's not something it's not something i came into this with yeah, no, well, the, the, the scene that stands out to me the most was when we were with James Houston and his wife, Rita. And James and Rita, they were in their 90s at this point. You know, she grew up with John Stott. Yep, yep. So they used to go bird watching with John Stott. <laughs> um, and, you know, talking to him, he would tell us. So when Rita would leave, she would have, she'd go take a nap and she'd come back and not know that we were there or who we were, right? Because of the dementia. Mm. 
And so when she was gone, he turned to us and he said, he's like, you know, a lot of people say to me, Mm. it's so sad what has happened to you. And he's like, this isn't sad. Mm. He said, this is glorious. He's like, we, now we love each other and everything else is pushed aside. All the other frills, all the other things that I want to use her for, all the other ways that we want to take kind of manipulate things, like all that is gone. And all we have is, is giving ourselves to each other. And the moment that really, so that, that was interesting because I was like, you know, your wife has dementia, you're aging, you're both nearing death. And you're like, this isn't, this isn't sad. This is, this isn't a culmination of a life. And that so reverses the cultural narrative. Um, I mean, it's, and I think, you know, as a seminary professor, my favorite student now is, and I'm, it's so fun to me that we're getting more and more of these. We're getting more people retiring into seminary. Hmm. And they're saying, I've been doing, you know, I had a guy, I've been mapping the genome for my career. <laughs> now I want to, now I want to care for young married couples. And so I'm coming to get a seminary degree and I want to minister and speak. I'm like, this is the coolest thing in the world. Yeah. But when Houston told us that, 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 that really helped it, it, you know, it was one of those moments that that it was profound, but what, what it did is it kind of helped us see hmm wow, we so assume the opposite culturally. And I don't even know ways that that has kind of, I've just kind of absorbed those, those assumptions. And, you know, watching him care for Rita. I mean, we tell the story in the book where the last thing we asked him is, you know, where have you seen God use your, you know, your weakness most in your life? And she, she would always interject things. She was a hysterical woman. Hysterical. <laughs> she would literally be like, "You just think that sounds good, Jim?" You know. <laughs> sort of yeah. And, but she, under her breath, said, "Well, I can tell you in a couple of years." And and she was. Everyone knew she was referencing her dementia. Like this was the great weakness of her life. And so there's this pause because Jamin and I don't know how to respond to this, <laughs> and we kind of know we shouldn't. And so James kind of looks at her, and then he looks at us, and then he says, "You see." Rita's worried that as she loses her memory, she's going to forget about Jesus. But as I always remind her, it's not that you remember him, but that he remembers you. And he's speaking directly to his wife at this point. Jamie and I are just kind of sitting there like, this is astounding. And, you know, he was such an example of, of a person who isn't known because, precisely because he chose uh, the path of weakness. Mm-hmm. And yet, you know, when every time we came to his house, there was another student, you know, I remember a pastor from Singapore called him on the phone and wanting to talk to him about something like, this is a guy who, who just had this ministry by phone or in by email and by caring for old students, meeting up with, with folks talking and he wasn't looking to be on stage anywhere. Yeah. Eugene Peterson, the same way, you know, mm-hmm. we found out he put us in this B&B or he told us to go to a B&B that was near him. And we talked to these unbelieving couple that run this B&B and we, they see us and they go, oh, you heard you see Eugene, huh? We're like, mm-hmm. oh, yeah, yeah, yeah. Well, this whole B&B basically was like running because Eugene Peterson lived nearby. <laughs> and people were flying out to sit at his feet like every other week. Huh. I mean, just consider that. Like, if if that's a picture of kingdom power, right? Like, you couldn't hide him if he wanted. Like, people were going to find him and try to sit at his feet for answers. And he wasn't. He wasn't looking for them. He wasn't mm-hmm. putting himself out there. And that was 
that was astonishing to see in an evangelicalism that is so full of people clamoring for attention. Mm-hmm. None of these people are. Yeah. And, and yet people find them and people seek them out and sit at their feet. And it just, it struck me as such a totally different kind of power. Yeah. <clears throat> you, you do mention, um, I believe it was you, you mentioned that uh, the thing that they all, the people that you interviewed have in common is the generosity <laughs> of, and it, it, generosity doesn't just mean like giving money, but it's time and all those things. So, but I mentioned generosity because there's three key terms you mentioned in the book that I want you to maybe briefly go over for the audience. Generosity, reconciliation, and non-divisive resistance. Mm. Why are those so important for uh, kingdom power? Yeah, well, I mean, I, I am on the gratitude and grace and, you know, so <laughs> gratitude yeah. being, you know, one of the most fundamental instincts of someone who has understood the gospel, right? Like yeah. that, that gratitude is this kind of supernatural outpouring of a soul. And so generosity of heart now is, is a natural outpouring of, of, of a heart that has been infused with the spirit of love. And so you just, the, the texture of these people, you just kind of felt it in them. And what it leads to, that kind of generosity leads to a kind of rejection of division. And, you know, this is something that is obvious biblically, but it is really difficult to see today, which is the church needs to be united, that Christians are united in love, and that reconciliation is, is just a fundamental aspect of our ministry, to be the, a reconciled people. Christ has reconciled us to himself for the sake of a ministry of reconciliation, right? So, and that really struck us as, you know, the desire of these folks to not divide. Um, and, and, you know, and they would land in different places about this. You know, some I would disagree with theological a little bit on, on the, like, you know, there, there, are, there are lines we must draw, right? Um, but the instinct is the right one. Mm-hmm. And, you know, more and more I'm worried about how, how quickly we, we start talking about other Christians as kind of of us or not of us. And, and so that, that is the heart that has been confronted with the gospel that overflows in gratitude and generosity. It's a heart that now reaches out and kind of is willing to take a path of reconciliation, which is just a harder path. I mean, there's a reason why the megachurches always say we want everyone to look alike. It just, that's an actual principle they use because you could build quicker churches faster and larger and things when, if everyone looks alike and makes the same yep. amount of money. And yep. Whereas if you're giving yourselves to kind of ministries of re- reconciling, that's harder work, that's longer work and it's weakness. And, and that connects just directly to the last, which is a term we kind of employ out of a little bit of worry of how, particularly younger folks, because, you know, quite honestly, we just saw it in our own lives, you know, in our twenties, we were kind of angry. We were, you know, angsty (laughs) (laughs) and it was just easy to kind of see error, see false teaching, see these things and respond divisively rather than non-divisively. And sometimes we need to respond device. I mean, there's no doubt that sometimes that's just the call, but 
by and large, I think our response is non-divisive resistance. Like when we see evil in the church, we need to respond non-divisively. That doesn't mean weakly in the sense that we normally think of weakness, right? Like, like kind of passively or something like, no, no, we, we still respond directly to it. But most people will, will kind of react to something. And if it doesn't change, just abandon that whole thing and move on. Whereas I, I think biblically, we're actually called the lives that bear witness that will often be a kind of decade long and decades long kind of bearing witness against yeah. false power in the church. And that, that is the kind of work that needs to be done. Hmm. Again, it's, it's a hard question, you know, I, and the question I probably get asked most is kind of when's the time to abandon ship <laughs> and whether that's denominationally, like when does my denomination break off of our current denomination, right? That's an obvious question today. But also, when is it just, you know, I, I just can't function in this church any longer. And, you know, a, a lot of time my answer is, well, one, it, it takes quite a lot of discernment. But two, uh, can you still be non-divisive? Hmm. Um, or, or are you just inherently divisive? Um, and I think there's, or perhaps is you're refusing to leave actually kind of muddying your ability to bear witness. I mean, sometimes the only way to bear witness is to kind of walk away from something mm -hmm. to really name, no, no, this, this thing has gone down the wrong path. Um, but as we've seen over the last 10 years specifically, I mean, there, every story that has come out now in the church or in ministries, I think of Ravi Zacharias, I think mm -hmm. of all these other places, there is just a trail of bodies of people who tried to respond well and were run over. Yeah. And, you know, and quite honestly, a lot of them were non-divisive mm -hmm. and they were just tossed aside. And that's, you know, at that point, say, okay, I'm going to kind of, you know, there's, it, it is what it is, but it's, it, it's troubling to me how often we're finding these now churches being uncovered that have this, this, this kind of lengthy list of non-disclosure agreements and, you know, all these people who have just been shut down and run over and abused. And, you know, and that this is where we need more people who are willing to kind of shine lights on these things and yet not demonize the entire church or the gospel or, you know, in the process yeah. and can actually stick around and do real care of the folks who are hmm. getting run over. Yeah. Yeah. So I maybe my question might be kind of a curveball, um, but with with this king, the power and, and and seeing this from from their perspective and, and getting the wisdom from the, the six people that you talk to and they talk about how does this practically play out in, kind of in our daily lives, as you talk about in the book, um, I can see some people thinking through these people that you talk to where like there wasn't social media, there wasn't this ability to get the message out there quick and, and not even like a cult because I'm, I'm sure like the culture of consumerism has always existed and um the kingdom has always existed all, all these like aspects of power have always existed but i think the immediacy may not have always existed uh, and so somebody's thinking okay so that's that's great for them because they can live in the backwoods and not not have any access to to phones or social media or to multimedia television whatever it is and get their names out there although it's, it's happened um obviously um but and I can, this is not something I struggle with necessarily myself, but I was maybe thinking like, maybe, maybe a little bit tongue in cheek, but as, as somebody's reading this book, maybe like they're thinking, okay, that 
they're reading, they're writing this book and they have, they obviously want exposure to, to sell books and to to have people purchase this book so the publisher is happy with the amount of copies that are sold so how how do we like hold these things in tension with with what yeah. what, with what these people are talking about totally no and that that is a hard tension i i I've had more than one person, more than one person, I suppose, in the publishing world say, "I'm not sure someone like Dallas Willard would be published today hmm. if he were starting out, for yeah. instance." And you know, it it is a it is a tough question. I mean, I think a lot of it is is asking the question honestly and wrestling with it, yeah, and doing that pretty consistently. Like, how do I use social media? and Why? Mm-hmm. And I think none of it should be obvious. Like we should never, I think every pastor has to question, why do I podcast my sermons? Mm-hmm. Um, I think there's probably more often than not a kind of fantasy and grandiosity attached to it, that it probably isn't very much grounded in reality. And there's a hope that it'll be like an avenue to, to stardom or, you know, publishing books. Well, Why? You know, what, what is the goal here? What, what am I aiming for? Yeah. Um, those are questions we just need to constantly wrestle with. And here's the hard part about weakness. I think one of the miss, one of the ways people misunderstand us, I think, or can misunderstand us is that they, they begin to think like, oh, well, so then if I'm good at something, I shouldn't do it. Mm-hmm. Right. Mm-hmm. And it's like, no, that you actually kind of hope God calls you into something you're naturally bad at. Because like depending and abiding is a little easier, quite honestly, if you're Moses and you're like, I'll do anything you want, God, as long as it doesn't involve speaking. He's like, great, you'll be my mouthpiece, you know, like that's a great place to be. If you're really gifted rhetorically and you're called to be a preacher, now your weakness is the very fact that you are naturally gifted Hmm. and your weakness now is your reliance upon your natural gifts. And I think that's where we really have to begin to wrestle through how do we embrace our weakness in these things? I think it's interesting that Paul actually says there's a form of preaching that undermines the power of the cross. And he tells us, because presumably he could have wielded that power and he tells us he explicitly doesn't, right? He, and, and what happens? The Corinthians are unimpressed with him mm-hmm. as a person, mm-hmm. <laughs> you know, they're, they're debating, you know, give me Paul, give me, you know, sorry, yeah. give me Peter, give me, you know. Apollos, you know, and, and Paul purposefully kind of chooses a way that that isn't impressive. Um, you know, he, he could, he was an impressive person though, right? He had a su- significant kind of resume. You, mm-hmm. We get it in Philippians three, and then he ends it and says, oh, and this is rubbish compared to what mm-hmm. I discover in Christ. And so a lot of it has to do with just how we hold that and how we wield it. But also I think, you know, if, if, if we really do embrace the very obvious fact that um, the whole law is summed up in love God and love your neighbor as yourself. And if love is true power, then if these things aren't done in and for love, then they aren't actually meaningful. And so no matter what you're doing, like if you're sitting on social media and you really have to ask the question, is this in and for love? Hmm. And if it isn't, then what am I doing? What, what, why am I wasting my time? If it's yeah. simply to get, because again, get, getting an audience, that's not necessarily a bad thing, right? Like trying to get word out about things isn't necessarily a bad thing. And so, but we need to really hold that carefully. Um, you know, it's, I think it was Eugene Peterson that said, um, you know, the, the church has always known, although we stopped talking about the temptation towards crowds, 
He's like, we, we talk about the temptation towards, towards sex. That, that, that's always talked about. We talk about um, the temptation towards money. Mm-hmm. He's like, why did we stop talking about the temptation towards crowds? Because that is easily as seductive as the other, mm-hmm. as the other two. And, and I, think, I think he's just right about that. Like we are all profoundly tempted towards significance in that regard. And, and what's hard to say is, well, it's not that significance is bad. It's not that being known is bad. It's, it's, am I doing this in and for love and therefore embracing the way of the kingdom? And can I lay it down and say, I don't find myself here. This is not who I am. This doesn't define me. This isn't, this isn't where I find meaning, you know, and that's, there's all sorts of ways that it becomes very clear that no, 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 I'm doing this because I want to generate something. I want to generate meaning. I want to generate my identity. I want to generate significance, right? That's what we need to be profoundly worried about, I think. And it, a lot of it comes with, can we use it to give away power? Mm. And, and you see this in the church quite a lot where yeah. pastors just, yeah. you know, suddenly circle the wagons, everyone else is demonized, right? And they're, they're just trying to generate this power structure. Yeah. Yeah, that before my next question, that kind of just strikes something to me is that the world has flipped power, true power on its uh, on its head. It's not the other way around. Like biblical power is true. Kingdom power is true power the way God intended it to be. It's that culture in the world, uh, the world, the flesh and devil has actually turned that on its head. Um, and made it the, the false way. So it's really kind of a difference of humility and pride um, is what I'm hearing. And um, yeah, that's right. Keep keeping yourself humble in perspective of the, of, of Christ. And so that was kind of just more of a comment that I was feeling like I was hearing from you, which is good. So you can correct me on that one, but what I well, wanted let me to just do, say, let me just say one please. thing about that. Cause I think that's exactly yeah. right. And it is oh, cool. the temptation of the fall. Yeah, you too yeah. can be like God. Mm-hmm. Yeah, and one one of the ways to differentiate the two ways is mm-hmm. if you think power is ultimately from and for the self, which would be true of God, right? God is from and for Himself. Right? Mm-hmm. He's He's from Himself. He's say He's of Himself, but He's also for Himself and His glory. That's proper to God. Mm-hmm. Right. You too can be like God is to try to generate power from and for the self, and that's precisely a, a life of trying to self-generate. Yeah, that we find yeah. in the fall, and that we continue to kind of bear that. That typically the tradition just calls pride. <laughs> um, but we, the way we talk about pride today, it doesn't quite get down to this aspect of it. Mm. No, that's yeah. I, yeah, before before that's just a quick little comment. We had a conversation with um, O. Allen Noble. I don't know if you know if you know who that is mm-hmm. from Oklahoma. Yeah, yeah. He he was talking about this like you were not your own. That we are we we are we are under we are under authority or under subjugation that's and but that itself where we don't have to form our identity we don't have to exert power we don't have to say that we're we're something because we are receivers and, and that's it sounds it sounds similar in flavor mm-hmm. to um kingdom power is something we exert it's something that's been exerted upon us and we are allowed to participate in it because we've been already been put into this kingdom itself that's exactly right yeah, that that first lie in the garden, that first that sin was pride surrounded by selfishness, and 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 you know it's more of that that type of pride for sure. I was gonna actually, I before we close out, I don't know how much more time we have, but something that <laughs> we're was, going for another two hours. I don't know if I, please, it, yeah, we well, then, why not? This, but this this is this is a marathon. 
Well, I, Kyle lives just up the road from us. So, That's you know, right. um, let's talk about rituals and worship. I thought this, this part of the book was so cool. Mm. Um, and, and I know that the, the book is really interesting to me because you, you kind of change themes. Like you go from interviewing some these six individuals and then you go into a kind of a doctrinal explanation of things and then something else. But you do talk about how rituals performed in the church point directly to Exodus. I think that was so cool. Can you explain that to the audience? Yeah. So as far as I can tell, every single Christian liturgy is an Exodus liturgy. Mm -hmm. And it's explicitly a way of reenacting the Exodus. And so we come through the waters of our baptism, um, the sea. We um, praise God in song as we walk in the wilderness um, sharing in, as Paul says, spiritual food and spiritual drink as we journey to the mountain of the Lord to hear the word of the Lord declared. And as Stephen says in his speech um, before he's martyred, you know, the, the, the problem was the, the Israelites turned back in their hearts towards Egypt. And so what Christian liturgies are meant to do in part is to kind of awaken the truth that I've turned back in my heart to Egypt, to the way of the world, the flesh and the devil, and that these, the kind of what we call ritual, the liturgies, these, this is a way to reorder my life around the truth that, that God is who he is. And he's confronted me in Christ Jesus mm-hmm. and that he's reordered what it means. And I think Nick, you're exactly right. He's actually, it's not that he's undoes it. Like he's, he's kind of revealed the proper power that the world has warped to something else. And so a church service is, is meant to be this reorientation to the God who allowed himself to be defined as the God that delivers from Egypt and has continued to do so. And, and that's why I think whenever like Paul wants to talk about one of those practices, whether it's baptism or Lord's supper or these, like he's turning to the Exodus, right? (laughs) And there's good reason for that. And it's, and so the way we give ourselves to those things matters because it, it means we have to kind of attend not merely to body, but to heart and to how much our heart has in fact turned to the things of the world and how, just like I think of Jeremiah seven, three, and four, you know, don't you say this is the temple of the Lord, the temple of the Lord, the temple mm-hmm. of the Lord. Like our temptation is to so sanctify these practices that we think merely just by doing them, that somehow formation happens where they're, they're actually meant to be means of grace means by which we draw near to God yeah. and present ourselves as living sacrifices to God. And so it's, it, it's a way to kind of constantly have this movement of mortification and vivification where we're laying down all the ways that we are tempted by these things. Yeah. And I think one of the things that struck us and the reason we landed here was mm-hmm. as we meditated on the powers and principalities and the, the, the vision of power presented in the new Testament, the church kept on coming up <laughs> but as the proper sphere in which Jesus kind of, what, what is the, the language Paul used in Ephesians? He kind of, um, it, it's not mocks, but almost like, it's like he, he kind of, um, bears witness against these things and reveals their folly. And that's, that's something we all participate in every Sunday is the kind of, um, mocking of the powers of the world as having lost and having no real power at all. And so I, the image I like to use is the kind of classic image of stained glass, like, you know, stained glass, 
isn't art, right? It's not a painting. You don't look mm -hmm. at stained glass, you look through it because it's a window. And the idea is as you look through these windows, you're seeing images presented on reality. So when you walk out of the church, you're mm -hmm. supposed to see the world shaped by these things. You're supposed to see Christ reigning, the, the, you know, the apostles is right and left hand. You're supposed to see all of that because you're supposed to live in the world as if these things are true, since they are true. And I think that's what all Christian liturgies do. They, they are, they're continuing this Exodus motif of, of God saving us um, from the land of slavery, sin, and death. And he's, and he's delivered us. And, you know, this is the, he's delivered us. It's true. Like it, it, it's true. Deliverance has happened, but now we're living our lives in the wilderness of this age waiting for his, his, his coming. Again. Yeah. And, and a couple of the, the rituals that you mentioned in there that I top of my top of my head, I can remember it was like, um, on Mount Sinai, the 10 commandments written word, it was the written word. Mm -hmm. And then uh, manna from heaven is the uh, the it points to communion as well. Can't, there, there's a few others that you put in there, but those are some really cool direct illustrations. Yeah, yeah, yeah. That's keep going. Yeah. Well, I so say what what struck us about that, particularly for two kids that grew up in the kind of you know generic evangelical world, like when you look at how at what practices the church rejects they're always the ones they have the least control over hmm. and so why do a lot of evangelical churches why have they stopped with the public reading of scripture hmm. and why have they stopped with the table because they can't nuance it they can't be like he you know instead of like thus says the lord it's like they want to say well wait, that doesn't mean what you think it means it really means this isn't like they don't let the word just be declared mm -hmm. without kind of, you know, massaging it. And, and the table, I think it just becomes seen as a kind of logistical nightmare. Mm -hmm. And it yep. just seems as a kind of, well, you know, this is, you know, and instead of actually entering into its richness, it just becomes something that we're like, so oh, Jesus, I way to do this. So every now and again, we're doing it. And they don't, they don't <laughs> yeah. embrace actually what yeah. this meal is. And so that was interesting as well of how even power, and questions about power have influenced what we include in the church service and what we don't. Hmm. Yeah. And that's, and I think that's a, that's a, that's a perfect segue um, to my last question. And was your, it, it's in your conclusion of the book after like mm -hmm. what I saying, how do these practically kind of play out as we, as we live our Christian life um, as pilgrims and exa as exiles and, um, and you, like you said, you go back to the church and you go back to the, the preach word, you go back to the sacraments, you go back to the, the corporate church, where I think maybe when somebody's thinking about how do we do kingdom power, I think maybe in our kind of Western individualistic mindset, we think, how do I do this myself? How do I get better at like <laughs> humility? How do I get better at re releasing kingdom power? When you don't realize this is, this is a corporate exercise. Mm -hmm. This is something we do as a church. So maybe as, as we end out, like how, how does, how does a church, like you said, how does this play into how do we live out this kingdom power? Yeah, well, you know, this is what I think is so profound about the economy of the kingdom as Paul presents it to us, where, and I've been influenced by John Barclay in this, in this regard, yep. his reading of yep. Paul on this, but like, you know, the fact that like God could have given each one of us all that we need mm -hmm. and he just chooses not to. He's like, I'm going to give you this gift. I'm going to give you that gift. You both need each other. I'm going to give you this amount of money. I'm going to give you like, it was interesting. Like Barclay pointed this out and I've just never heard someone point this out so obviously before, but it's true. Like <laughs> he's like, look, no one's fully needy in scripture. Like everyone has something to offer. And, 
and we all kind of know it's humanizing and as human beings, we need to have something to offer. And if you, if you try to give someone something unilaterally without them giving anything back, it actually dehumanizes them. Anyone who's ever worked with homeless people tell you this, like if it's all charitable giving at them and they have nothing to offer back, that will never lead to any sort of rehabilitation. This is why parents always give children money to buy them gifts. <laughs> because children just know innately gift giving is like a part of their humanity, right? And we, and we, we kind of want that. And what God has done in the body of Christ is he has, and I think this is true internal to a single church. So let's take a single church. Um, you have like the gifts of the spirit, right? Where so you, have, you have everyone, he's kind of dividing up all these things where we all actually need one another for the body to be what it is. I actually take that a step further. And I would say churches need to think of themselves this way in relation to other churches in their area as well. How can we minister to them in these yeah. ways? How can we kind of realize that we happen to have, like my church happens to have quite a lot of teachers and people well-educated and trained. So like, how might we partner with a church? And instead of saying, look, we have something to offer you. Mm. We want to say, well, if we have this abundance, it means we have a neglect of something because mm -hmm. that's the assumption, right? Like the problem is we, we tend to assume if you have certain gifts like teaching, you don't have any need. And so the, the problem is we, we tend to kind of, and we tend to see that with churches. So churches that have a lot of money must not have any need. Hmm. <laughs> I mean, that's funny biblically. I mean, talk <laughs> yeah. about power. Like, yeah, right. You, if you re just read scripture on this, you would, you would assume the opposite's the case. Yeah. It seems like all the rich churches tend to be the ones that go down. That's right. And it's, you know, there's, and there's good reason biblically. I'm not saying all rich churches are bad. They're just that, that totally. tends to be, tends to be yeah. the case. I mean, the God of mammon is a power that the Christians need to be worried about because that's an mm -hmm. idol. And, and yet we assume culturally that if a church has a lot of money, it's because God has blessed it. Yeah. And so there, there's a lot of those things that we have to pay very close attention to. And mm -hmm. I think notice that this whole model that Paul gives us is weakness. Like, and cause everyone I know is either good at giving or receiving. I even know very few people that are really great at both. And a lot of people that are really good givers as Christians until, and, and then you try to give them something <laughs> and it's a disaster. <laughs> and it's like, wow, that's interesting. Like you really struggle to, and, and just the realization of the body of Christ and how the body functions as we grow up into him, who is our head, what it means to, to kind of give and receive. Um, and, and that's just, you know, there, there's a real gift there in our humanity, but there's, there's something about what it, what it entails to, to receive the gifts of the spirit. And it's just this kind of a thing. And that's how this gets worked out in the body of Christ. Mm. Mm. Yeah. And uh, that's good. Uh, first and second Corinthians, you may maybe reference more than any other book uh, yeah. in your book, but maybe Ephesians too, as well. Um, so I know those stick out really well to me. Um, James. For, James. Is, yeah. James is something that surprised us actually. Okay. And what surprised us about James is how often, how someone uses their words tells you where they come from, mm -hmm. either from the devil or from the Lord. Wow. And if you just read James with that lens, it's disconcerting. And you could just, you know, insert, use your words with, use your Twitter feed, use your, social media platform, you, you know, mm -hmm. and, 
it is fascinating how James uses speech as one of the primary signs of where someone comes from. That was really <laughs> kind of astonishing to us. Yeah, no, that's wonderful. Yeah, I was, that's good. I, uh, the reason why I brought those up is just for after this interview, before you read your book, um, or in conjunction with reading your book, reading the book, the Bible, these are, um, passages that you in books in the Bible that you most, uh, often reference yeah. to help companion some study to it. Totally. Yeah. I, I, I think first and second Corinthians is the text for yeah. America today. I mean, that is, yeah. The, mm-hmm. that, that correspondence is the American church's great temptation yeah. and, and problem. And, and I would say this, you know, let me, let me, I can kind of, you know, I'll let you guys end however you want, but let me end kind of my part with just saying this, because, you know, knowing the, the kind of reformed crowd we're talking to, and let me just kind of name a specific reform temptation here, I think. <laughs> okay. I, I'm pretty sure I know where you're going. <laughs> <laughs> well, and this is, and I know nothing but good things about this person. So I'm not kind of attacking this, this person and their work as, as quality, yeah. as far as I could tell, but you know, there's very few people that when we wrote our book, there was only one other book on power that I knew of or two other, one other person writing on power. Yeah. And it was Andy Crouch. Ah, okay. Yep. And so in the kind of neo-Kyperianism on offer today, there is a real temptation to ground power outside of the cross. Yep. And Crouch does this explicitly in playing God where he grounds power in the creative event. Yep. And the problem with that now, now there's something wise about that, right? Cause you don't want to demonize creation. You don't want to like, like we need to talk about goods that, that mm-hmm. haven't been eradicated. Like, so there's, there's some wisdom in that. Um, you don't want to, you don't want to pause too quick, too, too long on that, on that mm-hmm. move before you get to the cross. Because the problem is that suddenly we can just begin to believe that kingdom power is kingdomly. If it's, if it's kind of done well, and suddenly we can have a very hipster gospel, that really makes no sense in light of the cross. Yeah. And, and when you get to weakness questions and he, he actually wrote a follow-up book. I think he recognized the problem with his first mm. book. He actually wrote a follow-up book. Um, although that book, I would say it doesn't actually, the, the kind of the, the trajectory is already in my, in my mind wrong. Again, I, I appreciate him, but yeah, our book is an, a kind of an antithetical vision of power to his. Yeah. And so I, I worry that the kind of neo-Kyperianism you see today hasn't thought about how the powers and principalities will warp the soul of their churches in their desire to be yeah, 100% agree. Yeah. culture builders. Yeah, no, that's, I, I see the same stuff for sure. And I think there's a real fantasy that we are going to kind of win culture. Hmm when more often than not, I just see Christians and organizations being worked by it. Mm. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. Uh, yeah. A hundred thousand percent. Yeah. That's, I love how you end on that stuff. That's yeah. I, I think it's our temptation. It's kind of the reformed ish Kyperian kind of let's take over the world for, um, mm-hmm. and take over culture and redeem. And there's some, there's some good stuff in it. Absolutely. Totally. Totally. Um, but yeah, I like, I like the, yeah, it's a good, it's a good corrective. A good, it's a good call. Um, yeah, well, this is not our home. This is, this is our, right. this is, this is our temporary yeah. residence. So it's, yeah, it's we're in exile. Sense, yeah. Like why, like, what are we trying to, what are we trying to do when we're trying to like take over culture in a sense where that's, this is not, this is not our culture. This is, we're here temporarily. Um, and even kind of just overall with, with the book, I was, I was going to say, but I, I recently read 
um, a little bit of Edwards. I read his religious affections and I read a couple other things. And her book kind of reminded me of it in more like the introspective sense where we're looking on our heart and I think it was reform people, generally speaking, that's kind of who's listening to us is more than just reform who are listening to us. But as reform people, we, like, we're very good at looking retrospectively. We're very good at looking outside of us to Christ, which is where we should be looking. But I think we very, look, very rarely look inside and say, okay, like what's, what are the issues in here? We know we're sinners. There's, there's no question about that. But how does it actually manifest? And I think your book does a good job of assessing the situation within without staying within. Um, and saying, okay, where's, where's yeah. the solution? How, how, do we, how do we fix this? We have to look extrospective. We have to look outside of ourselves, but we also have to look inside of ourselves. We also look to see where's, where's the power That's coming right. from. And I, I, think your, I think your book does a good job of holding that tension on, mm-hmm. we need to look to Christ for true power, but we also have to look to ourselves to see, okay, where, where have we gone wrong? within this power and it's it was all like all it's it was hard reading portions of the book for myself i was like man this is stuff i do all the time these are questions these are these are are things i think about all the time like Mm. some of jamin's portions like yeah those are the exact same questions i was thinking myself and so i think it's it's a good it's a good again this is not typical reform speak but this is i think it's stuff that we have to think about it's a good spiritual checkup it's a where, where am I at on yeah. some of these things? Yeah. And yeah. I think what's important to remember is that, you know, I think of Luke 747, where Jesus says, the one who has been forgiven much can love much. Yeah. That the path to growing in love is the path to knowing how much you need forgiveness. Yep. So the introspection is not an end in itself. Yep. But it's recognizing the depth of our sin, the depth of our neediness, precisely so we can embrace Christ more fully. Yeah. No. Yeah. And I, yeah, yeah. I love that. I, and again, and it, maybe this is a, is a weird, is a weird topic to say, go out and buy the book and do this stuff for, your, for, your, for yourself. But <laughs> I'll still, I'm still going to tell people go, go and get this book and, and use it as a spiritual checkup and, mm-hmm. and, and figure out, okay, where, where do we land on this? How can we, how can we exude and how can we be imbibed in this kingdom power? And it's like you say, it's in the church. And so if we're, if we're in the church under the preach word, um, getting the sacraments on a consistent basis, mm-hmm. um, having discipline, having exhortation. These are the things that, if, even though it doesn't sound like it, but these are the things that actually give us power um, because we're yeah. in this power. Um, so yeah. thank you for writing this book with, mm-hmm. with Jamin and, and hopefully we can have him on in, in the future totally. as well. Um, I don't know, Nick, if you want to go ahead and add anything else, but for my side, it's just, yeah, it's a thank you. And it's, it's not mm-hmm. the book I would have, like gone for and grabbed immediately, but it's a book I think I needed. So I think uh, that's, I think it's going to be true for a lot of yeah. our audience. It's a book. I think they're not going to immediately assume that they're going to want to read over on top of like Calvin and Turch and all that stuff. But it's, I think it's a book. That they, I think it's a book people need to read. Yeah. Yeah. I agree. Uh, my closing comment would just be that it's, it's very, it's convicting and sobering, uh, but it has a lot of hope in it. Yeah. And so it's encur- it gives you a sense of encouragement, even though it's it's going to cause you to really uh, look at yourself and can, some convicting language and a reminder that we are all sojourners in this world. And it's not a uh, it's really that we need to know that we're going to embrace suffering and know how to respond to suffering rather than avoiding it or anything else like we're sojourners in this world. We're part of the yeah. God's God's kingdom. So, yep. Yeah. yeah. Great and book. I, I know. I know you've got other stuff coming out in the future. And we'll, 
we're gonna have to have you on again whenever yeah. whenever that comes out but thanks yeah, yeah. for coming on and yeah it's been it's been a pleasure talking to you again about a year after we talked to you at first yeah well thanks guys it's always fun yeah thank you i think, I think we hold now the record for the longest book club episode ever so yes. it's nice <laughs> that's uh that's a mantle you can put i'm sure you'd be like yeah this is this is the highlight of my career right now for the longest episode yes attitude <laughs> sweet yeah well thank you and and yeah have a have a great day and, and hopefully we'll talk to you soon yeah, thanks, guys. Yeah. No, it was good being with you both, Peter and Nick. Yeah. Hey, guys, we hope you enjoyed that episode of our podcast, Guilt, Grace, Gratitude. And we, as we've said before, we are bridging the gap to Reformed Christian theology for your listening pleasure. So we would like to make sure this is enjoyed by others around the world and how to best do that is rate and review us on itunes yeah and you after you rate a review or instead of written review or doing everything all in once retweeting us on twitter liking us on twitter liking us on instagram following us on both of those platforms because that actually puts in front of people's physical face this podcast these guests and most importantly the gospel the doctrines uh, that these guests are, are bringing in front of you guys. So please do that. It helps get in front of more people. Amen. And hopefully you guys are part of a local church and you're tithing. And uh, after that, after tithing, if you have any means left over, please consider donating to us to make sure our bridge is well paved and maintained and strong and sturdy. As again, we bridge the gap to reform Christian <laughs> theology. Exactly. Yeah. And you guys can find that link on Anchor, our official Anchor website. If you just go on um, our social media links, it'll, it'll link you to that website. It's also at the bottom of these this podcast show notes. If you're on this podcast, this specific episode, scroll all the way to the bottom of that show notes and you guys will find a link for this for three different options of donating. So we hope you guys can help us bridge the gap, pay for shipping, get nicer stuff, all for the focus of spreading the gospel further. Yep. All for the kingdom of God. Thanks so much, guys. We'll see you guys next time. <laughs>